Louis, I think this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. Rhodes? Well, we're going, we don't need Rhodes. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. No, I am your father. You're listening to After the Ending, the only film podcast where we tell you what happens after the ending of your favorite films. And now, here are your hosts, Mike Spring and Phil Edwards. Hello and welcome to After the Ending. I'm Mike Spring. And I'm Phil Edwards. Phil, how the heck are you doing today? It's all good over in Blighty. How's it over there in the States? Uh, it is great over here in Stady. Is that a thing? I don't know what Blighty is. Well, Blighty is another. It's a slang for Great Britain. Is it really? Mm. I did not and know I, that. It's an old piece of slang. Well, you learn something every day, I guess. There you go. We, we are here to educate as well as entertain. All right. Well, now that I feel more educated, let's move on to talking about movies. Why don't you educate our listeners as to which films we're going to be talking about today? Yes, we will be going after the ending of 1988's Heathers on the 2006 film Children of Men, and we'll be looking at our top 10 films of 1990. It is a jam-packed episode for sure. So, Phil, I'm going to have you give everyone the breakdown on Children of Men, but first I do want to say I have kind of a funny story about it. A funny story about Children of Men. Right, which is not a very funny okay. movie. <laughs> yeah, no, I was going to say. So my wife and I are usually pretty in tune on things, you know, movies, TV shows, music. We, we generally tend to kind of follow along the same lines. In, in the... 17 plus years that we've been together never have we disagreed so vehemently on anything ever in any sort of pop culture format than we have on children of men okay well, tell me more <laughs> so i love children of men yeah, me too and my wife absolutely hates it it is her least favorite movie ever well i can understand why people wouldn't like it i mean it's a uh, quite bleak for most of the film yeah, yeah, it is. And she doesn't watch a lot of like dystopic future movies where that's like my favorite genre, you know, so but yeah, I, I know yeah. it's awfully dark and that's not usually what she goes for. I actually didn't make her watch it. I, I wasn't even there for it. She was with visiting with some family and they decided to rent a movie and this was the one they picked. And <laughs> so she kind of had to watch it, and, but she hated it. And so anytime I bring up Children of Men, if it even comes up in conversation, she's always just like, ugh, that's the worst movie ever. Oh, well, she's going to enjoy this episode. Oh, absolutely. I told her <laughs> I told her she's going to have to put this one on and, you know, turn it up full volume because it's going to be the one just for her. Yes. So I'm dedicating this episode to my lovely wife, Melissa. Yes. The, Melissa, this one's for you. Who will probably hate every minute of it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm sure she'll enjoy, you know, when we get to the end of our after the ending. Right. Maybe if I took out some characters with the bus, maybe she'd like it more. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you'll have to let us know next week. Yeah, yeah, I will do that. <laughs> All right. So anyway, uh, that's that's my story about Children of Men. Why don't you tell people what happens in this awesome slash awful film, depending on <laughs> where you fall? Yes, well, it's the 2006 film directed by Alfonso Cuaron, and it's based on the 1992 novel by P.D. James. Uh, the film takes place in 2027, which is 18 years after a global human infertility crisis. And civilization is on the brink of collapse as mankind faces extinction. The UK still has a functioning government, but has become a police state to deal with the huge influx of immigrants. Uh, we follow Theo Farran, played by Clive Owen, who's kidnapped by the Fishers, a militant immigrants' rights group led by Theo's estranged wife, Julianne Taylor, played by Julianne Moore. They separated after the death of their son, Dylan, during a flu pandemic uh, years before. The group offer Theo money to get transit papers for Key, a young refugee, and escorted to safety. Key tells Theo that she's pregnant, and Julian was going to take her to a group working on curing infertility. After various trials and tribulations, were, which include Julianne Moore's character getting killed in an amazing scene, 
where they film it all around, in and out of the car, which is all done with camera going in and out and the seats were made to go up and down. So that's a brilliant scene. But eventually, yes, after they go through all these crazy and terrible things, they make it to a refugee camp, which is the next stop to get to the ship, which is where this uh, the people working on a cure can be found. But while we're in the refugee camp, Key gives birth to a baby girl that night, and the next day, war breaks out between the British Army and refugees. The fishers capture Key and the baby. Theo braves the battle outside and finds Key and the baby and rescues her. And the battle pauses when people on both sides see the baby as it cries, and they allow Theo and Key and a few others to leave. And Theo, Key and the baby get on a rowboat, and Theo rows away with, with the, them, and he's talking to her, but then she realises he's been shot. And she, Key says she'll call the baby Dylan after Theo's lost son. Theo passes out as the ship they've been looking for appears from the fog. And there is possibly hope for mankind. That's the end. Very nicely done. It is a, it is a surprisingly more complicated movie than you remember, even though it's oh, yeah. largely an action film. But there's a lot to it. It's an action film with some depth. Oh, yeah. There's lots. I barely touched on lots of things there. But that's the, right. the broad strokes there. But it's, uh, it's, it is a very well-made film. Yes, and that's what makes it so brilliant, Mrs. Spring. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What are you talking about? It's, it's not rubbish. I mean, there's that scene when he's just trying to get through the battle at the end. Yeah. I mean, that was. Uh, I think that took a few days to shoot, but it's, uh, it was well worth it. Yeah, I mean, Alfonso Cuarón is definitely an amazing director. Uh, you know, between this and Harry Potter and The Prisoner of Azkaban and Gravity, yeah. you know, I, I think he's definitely uh, just really one of the premier talents working today. Yeah, well, it's the way he mixes the technology and the CGI where you don't really notice it. Right. And he also, he does these films, these big technologically advanced films, but they, they have a heart to them, you know, and they, yeah. they're they not just glitz and glamour like, you know, say a Michael Bay film, but they, they have a deeper meaning and a deeper story and, and a, a real emotion to them, which I think is what makes them so good. Oh, definitely. Totally agree with you there. Yeah. Okay. But what have you got then for your day after the events of the film? Okay. Well, Theo, Key, and the baby Dylan are picked up by the ship called the Tomorrow and are welcomed on board. The ship quickly maneuvers away from the fighting in Bexhill and goes back out to open waters. Key and the baby are cared for while Theo is treated for his gunshot wound and he begins to make a full recovery. Once he's back on his feet, he makes his way out among the crew and the scientists on board after checking on Key and baby Dylan. Theo's concerned at first that they might be using Key as a guinea pig, but it turns out that she and Dylan are being treated extremely well. They've taken some blood samples and some skin cells, but other than that, the people on the ship are just excited to have them on board. Unbeknownst to Theo, however, there's a mole on the ship, and late that night, he sends out a secret message to an unknown organization. Oh. And you can probably guess, but that's where I'm going to leave it for now. Mm, okay. Oh, interesting. Yeah. All right. Well, how about your day after, then? Okay. Theo wakes up. He's in an infirmary. There are three other beds, all are empty. He realises he's on board a ship. For a moment he relaxes as he realises they made it. Then he panics when he can't see Key or Baby Dylan. Calling for help, a nurse comes in to check on him, but he keeps calling for Key. The nurse leaves and comes back with her. She's holding Baby Dylan, and both are fine and look healthy. Key explains how the people on the ship helped them, and they're heading to safe waters. They are joined by Dr Elizabeth Jones. She explains that the ship is a research vessel, and with Key's help they can work on a cure. Key is happy to help, and tells Theo that she has already donated eggs, which have also been found to be fertile. The plan is to use them with surrogates to see if more babies can be brought to term. And that's my day after. Very interesting. So not dissimilar, our endings, you know, so far. Well, let's see where it goes, though, now. with uh, What have you got for your immediate aftermath? Okay, well, the next day, a small pirate gunship shows up alongside the Tomorrow. They forcefully board the ship, but claim they're just there to loot the ship for drugs and no one will get hurt. 
However, they immediately begin searching for Key, and Theo realizes that something is off. Getting one of the men alone, Theo forces him to tell the truth. Not surprisingly, it turns out they're there for Key and the baby. Turns out they're mercenaries who were hired by the British government, who are worried that a baby could spark a revolution among the common people. He also reveals who the traitor on board the Tomorrow is. Theo renders the man unconscious and then goes on a commando-style mission, taking the mercenaries out one by one, as well as the traitor. After he finally kills or incapacitates them all, he gets the crew's help to load all the bodies back onto their ship. Theo radios in a false report to the government that they are unable to locate the Tomorrow. Then he rigs the pirate ship to explode, making it look like a faulty gas pipe caused it. Finally, as the ship blows up, the Tomorrow sails off and heads for the far seas, realizing they need to disappear to keep Key and Theo safe. Oh, okay. I like that, yeah. That's my that's my action scene. So in my head, of course, this was, you know, it's like a long, uncut shot, the last, like, eight minutes of, you know, of Clive Owen running through the ship, taking out these bad guys one by one. That's how I yeah. visualized it. No, I like that. Yeah, because it makes <laughs> sense, though, that the uh, the British government would be after it because you, f- you find out in the film, don't you, that the fishers want the baby to be, like, a, to help with their rebellion. Right, exactly. So, yeah, so that's, a, that's an action. I like that. Thank you. All right, let's hear your immediate aftermath. Weeks have passed. The ship keeps moving to stay safe, but keeps picking up fuel and supplies. Word of what is on board and what they're doing means that they get safe passage. Theo is now fully recovered, but never moves far from Key or the baby. Dr. Liz Jones and Theo have long conversations about anything and everything. And Dr. Jones has a theory about the the infertility epidemic. It's nothing scientific, it's just a feeling she has. She believes it could be a result of a huge increase in the global population over the years. It's almost like a safety valve to give the Earth a chance to recover. It's just a theory. She realises it's probably due to pollution and things like that, but it's, that's just she just has that feeling. But by using Key's eggs, three of the surrogates have become pregnant. It's not much, but the sense of hope it has generated is incredible. Although they wanted to keep things quiet, the news gets out from the ship and begins to sweep around the world. In many places, just hearing about it stops people fighting. They realise there's a chance for humanity after all, and they need to ensure that there's a decent world for the new children to grow up in. And that's my immediate aftermath. Oh, very nice. I like that. Thank you very much. Now, I hope that Theo and Dr. Jones don't fall in love, because as we all know, there's no time (laughs) for love, Dr. Jones. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, brilliant. Thank you. Yeah, I'd love to say we were clever enough to, you know, plan that out, but... But no, brilliant. Okay, yeah, so what have you got though for your long term? All right. Nobody has heard from the tomorrow in nearly a decade. Then, one day, a ship sails in from the fog. It's the tomorrow. They moor just offshore at a port off of Dover, and then just sit there for days. As people's speculation begins to grow, a crowd starts to form near the dock. The press comes, and before long, there's a constant stream of people and news outlets at the port, waiting to see what the tomorrow is going to do. Then, one day, the ship docks and lowers its gangplank. Off the ship walks Theo and Key, as well as baby Dylan, who's now ten years old. They're followed by a dozen children, all between the ages of three and nine. Then a number of crew members come out, all carrying infants and toddlers. The crowd erupts and the press goes crazy. Knowing that the government would try to stop them if they just simply returned to England, Theo and the crew realized that their only safety was in appearing in such a public way that the government couldn't risk harming them. Armed with the cure, Theo and the crew of the Tomorrow are greeted as heroes in England as they set about repopulating the world with the sound of children's laughter. Oh, brilliant. Thank you very much. Yeah. Yeah, you know me. I couldn't resist going for the the happy ending, so. (laughs) No, I like it. I like that. Thanks. All right. Well, let's hear how yours wraps up then. Give us your long term. Okay. Although they find no cure, the researchers note that there are more women around the world becoming pregnant. 
that's still only a handful, but it does show the promise of something more. The ship now features the cries and laughs of a number of babies. Dylan is now three, and she along with Kia is watched over by Theo. They are linked to his past and his lost friends. There are still idiots in the world fighting pointless battles, but in more and more places there is a focus on the future. Rebuilding takes place, cleaner energy sources are developed, people start treating each other better, and food is in abundance. Millions of people have died over the past few decades, whether from war or suicide, but the earth is now a new Eden, as if it had been holding its breath for this new generation. And that's the end. I like it. I like it. I like that theory about it being like a almost like a break, you know, that the earth needed to sort of cap things off to yeah. kind of handle overpopulation. That was very Just take, cool. take a breath. Yeah. Make some space. Yeah, I like it. Very cool. Because children are man. The end, though, is it is full of hope. Oh, absolutely. It's, it's a absolutely. small piece of hope, but it is there. Right. That's what I like about the movie. You know, it is a bleak film, but it, it does have this message of hope, which I think is kind of the whole point of it, you know. Yeah. Well, tell us, Phil, do you have any trivia of men for us? <laughs> I do. Great. Okay. Uh, Michael Caine based his performance on John Lennon. Interesting. Uh, Theo never gets to smoke an entire cigarette, and what he goes to, you can tell he really needs that cigarette. <laughs> uh, almost every shot contains an animal, usually a dog. Curon huh. uh, said he didn't want to make a film that ends when the credits roll. He wanted to make a film that when the final credits do roll, that's really the beginning of the film. Mm, I can see that. So we've done that for him. Right. Uh, You're welcome, Bat Mr. Quarrow. Yeah. In the Battersea Power Station scene, you see Picasso's Guernica painting, and the same in image is in the tunnel that Theo and Key escape through on the rowboat. Uh, the street battle where Clive Owen has to take cover uh, caused concern because it took 14 days to pre prepare for the one shot with a delay of five hours every time it had to be reshot. Uh, they took two days to do it, and only one complete take was actually captured on film. Uh, in the middle of one take, some blood spattered on the camera lens. Quran Nearly ruined it by shouting cut, but his voice was obliterated by the sound of a tank. And in the end, they used that one because it was really good. Huh, very cool. And, and one last little bit. At the beginning of the film, when Theo leaves the coffee shop, you can see the shard. It's the big pointy building in the background, you know, really tall building. Uh, however, construction began on that building in 2009, three years after the film was made. It was digitally added to the movie because it took place in 2027. They knew, they knew it was going to get built, so they added it in. Huh. Just to make sure it worked. That's pretty like cool. That. Yeah, I like yeah. that too. That's neat. But that's Children of Man. Very cool. All right, then. Well, let's move on to a movie that is, uh, I guess, can also be considered kind of bleak, depending on how you look at yes. it. Yes, yeah. And that would be Heathers. Yes, a very good film. Oh, absolutely. I mean, definitely one of the, I think, I don't want to say one of the original cult classics, but I think sort of for uh, from the 80s that Heathers is one of those movies. It only grossed, I think, just slightly over a million dollars at the box office, which is even in the 80s is a paltry sum. But it's, yeah. it's gone on to become this you know well-loved movie that most everyone has seen, especially people of a certain age. And it, it definitely – if you say the word Heathers to somebody uh, it, referencing like school or cliques or anything like that, it, it is definitely – people know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, it's definitely entered the public consciousness or yes. subconsciousness. I suppose, but it's yeah, it's definitely there. It had a big in impact, took its time, but it uh, yeah, it's definitely there. Yeah, for sure. Okay, so do you want to give us a rundown of what happens in the film? Sure thing. So, Heather's 1988, starring Winona Ryder, Christian Slater, and Shannon Doherty. Ohio high school student Veronica is one of the four most popular girls in school, with the other three all named Heather. I guess nowadays you'd call them frenemies more than anything else, but yeah, that's, yeah, yeah. Uh, their clique is the most feared and hated group in school, and Veronica wants to return to a more normal life. 
When bad boy J.D., played by Christian Slater, shows up and the Heathers turn on Veronica, J.D., unwittingly aided by Veronica, starts to kill them off and make their deaths look like suicides. Veronica befriends an obese suicidal girl named Martha Dumptruck. Well, that's, that's her nickname. Uh, but when J.D. tries to kill Veronica for turning on him, she shoots him. Ultimately, he ends up blowing himself up, and Veronica takes the power from the remaining Heathers and proclaims herself the new queen of the school with Martha Dumptruck by her side. And that is the nutshell version of Heathers. Oh, nicely summed up. But it's a, it's a very funny film, but very dark, and uh, people do die. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's definitely the, the quintessential black comedy, for sure. Yeah, and I'll just say uh, there's a, a little bit of trivia I'm not going to include in, in the end bit, but uh, Christian Slater apparently based his performance on Jack Nicholson, and you never could guess, could you? <laughs> I was going to say, I think Christian Slater based his whole career on Jack Nicholson. <laughs> I know, but uh, <laughs> it's... Uh, yeah, I mean, I like uh, Christian not... Slater, but definitely, I I think he's always had a, a touch of the of the of the Jack Nicholson to him. Yeah, definitely. But him, both him and Winona uh, are very good in the film. Oh yeah, for sure. All right. Well, why don't you go ahead then, Phil, and share with us your day after? Okay then. After the police have cleared the area and questioned everyone about the bomb going off, everyone is allowed to go home. Veronica gets home. She smokes a cigarette, has something to eat, and then falls asleep. It's been a long, twisted day. Uh, the next day, school is closed while a full investigation is made. Veronica wanders around town, going nowhere in particular. She bumps into Martha and other friends. She chats with them for a while, but doesn't stay with any of them for long. She feels disconnected from everything. And that's my day after. Okay, interesting. And what have you got for yours? All right, well, the following Monday, when school has opened again, the entire school feels changed. With all of the deaths revealed as murders and the power structure of the Heathers changed, no one is sure what to think about anything anymore. Everybody is walking around as if they're shell-shocked. Finally, at the end of the day, as the school pep rally is being held and it's virtually lifeless, Veronica takes the microphone from the school principal and gives an impassioned speech to the student body. This is a school that's been divided for too long, she says. The cool kids, the nerds, the jocks, the geeks, the drama kids, the neo-maxi zoomed weebies. Well, I'm here to say no more. From now on, you can talk to whoever you want to talk to, date who you want to date, and hang out with whoever you want to. You don't have to be afraid anymore. There's silence for a minute, then slowly, one of the students starts clapping. It doesn't take long for more to join in, and in moments, the entire gym erupts into thunderous applause. And that's my oh, day very after. Nice. Very nice. I like that big speech. And I, I can imagine our first guy be the slow clap. You've got to have the, the classic, slow clap, right? The classic 80s slow clap. That's exactly that. it. I was I, I want to try and fit some kind of teen movie tropes, and I thought, you got to have a slow clap in there yeah. somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> and he's looking around constantly, just making sure he's doing the right thing. Right. Yeah, I like right. it. Yeah. <laughs> no, very good. All right. Well, how about your immediate aftermath then? Okay. The rest of Veronica's school life passes mainly without incident. However, she does see that the various cliques do mix a little more. Nothing world-changing, but the, the nastiness appears to have lessened from the school. Veronica walks through it all in a daze. She works hard, but she feels broken inside. She ends up going to college. She makes friends, but mainly keeps to herself. One afternoon, while studying in the library, she's approached by a man. He introduces himself as F. Scott. He works for an agency, and Veronica ticks all the boxes to make a great agent. Veronica stares at him and then says, tell me more. That's my immediate aftermath. Hmm, intriguing. I'm curious to see where this is going. Well, you're going to have to wait because <laughs> you're going to tell us your immediate aftermath. All right, sounds good. Well, with prom coming up, Veronica's newfound popularity means she's inundated with potential prom dates. Most of the guys are your typical jocks and preppies, but Veronica is pleased when Dennis Dexter, the head of the chess club and the AV squad, asks her to prom, and she happily accepts. When a football player asks Martha Dumptruck to the prom, 
Veronica does some digging and finds out that he made a bet with the other football players that he could get Martha in bed on prom night. Filled with rage, she confronts the player and tells him that if he doesn't take Martha to the prom the right way and show her a good time and treat her with respect, she's going to report him to the principal and get him kicked off the football team. Pretty soon, the word spreads that nobody messes with Veronica or her friends. And that's my immediate aftermath. Oh, okay. She's bringing the power back. I like it. Yeah. All right, Phil. Well, how about your long term? I want to see where this where this is heading. Okay. Veronica has found her calling at the agency. Any more information about that and we'd have to kill you. <laughs> she travels around the world. She meets interesting people and occasionally kills them. Yet she always makes it look like a suicide and she only kills those who deserve it. It's not the life she expected to have, but it's a life worth living. She's found her place in the world and she's happy. And that's my ending. I see. So a little dark, but kind of not dark in a way. Yeah. Yes. It's sort of. Even though she, you know, she didn't like what happened in the school, it did, it left its mark. Sure. It, but, she, but she's focused it on making sure she uses it against people who deserve it. I like it. I like it. Okay, what have you got, though, for your uh, long term? Okay, well, prom night comes and everyone has a good time, including Veronica, Dennis, Martha, and Bash, the football player who took Martha to the dance. It turns out that he really enjoyed his time with Martha, and the two of them have started dating. Veronica and Dennis have a nice time, but they part simply as friends. With the four of them forming the nucleus of the new power clique at school, with one jock, one nerd, one average girl, and one popular girl, slowly things begin to change. Barriers break down and friendships begin to form where previously they never would have. Even the two Heathers have begun to thaw out, although they're still a little bitchy overall. The next year, when Veronica graduates, she heads off to college full of hope and optimism. Her first day on campus, she comes across a group of three friends who are the most popular girls on campus, the Tracys. <laughs> <laughs> Veronica smiles and realizes that she's got her work cut out for her here, too. Brilliant. So she's she's changing the world one click at a time. That's right. Exactly. <laughs> Good stuff. Thank you. Thank you. All right. How about uh, do you have any trivia for us about Heather's? Yes. The name Heather is said 90 times throughout the film. That's a lot of times. That's a lot of Heather's. Yeah. Uh, Brad Pitt auditioned for the role of JD, but he was rejected as he was apparently too nice. Which is funny because I, I could see him in that role, and especially after his turn in Thelma and Louise, you know. Well, that's the thing I was going to say as well. He did play a character called JD in Thelma and Louise. Oh, I didn't realize that was the same character name. That's funny. Yeah. Uh, and uh, the role of Veronica was originally intended for Jennifer Connolly, but she turned it down. It was, it took, filming took 32 days in July and August in 1988. Jim Carrey, Judd Nelson, and Jason Bateman were also considered for the role of JD. And that's uh, Heathers. Okay, very good. All right, well, that's going to wrap up our endings for this episode. Let's move on then to our 100 Years of Hollywood in 100 episodes, where we take a year and Phil and I both share our top 10 favorite films from that year. This week, we are doing the year 1990. So, Phil, hop into your time machine. Take us back to the, the dawn of the 90s and tell us what was happening back in 1990. Okay, 1990, the uh, UK Prime Minister was Margaret Thatcher, followed by John Major. And the U.S. president was George H.W. Bush. Uh, there was lots of bad stuff going on, similar to what's going on nowadays. When I was looking through the list, it was just it just made me think, well, nothing's changed. <laughs> right. But anyway, let's look at some of the, the nicer things. Uh, Rowan Atkinson's Mr. Bean debuted. Well, that might be a nice thing for some. It could be a terrible thing for others. <laughs> right. The, fir the first McDonald opened in Moscow, Russia, and another one opened in Shenzhen, China. Smoking was banned in all U.S. cross-country flights. Nelson Mandela was released from prison. German reunification began as an agreement was reached. The pale blue dot photo of Earth was sent back from Voyager 1. 
The SR71, the Blackbird plane, sets a US transcontinental speed record of 1 hour 8 minutes 17 seconds. Uh, Mikhail Gorbachev was elected as the first executive president of Soviet of the Soviet Union and Universal Studios Orlando opened uh, the Gulf War, Iraq invaded Kuwait. The best preserved Tyrannosaurus Rex was found in South Dakota. Tim Berners-Lee published a more formal proposal for the World Wide Web. And channel tunnel workers from the UK and France meet 40 metres beneath the English Channel seabed. So that's 1990. We also saw the births of some people who are doing rather well nowadays. Uh, Liam Hemsworth, Grant Gustin, Kristen Stewart, Emma Watson, Dev Patel, Thomas Brody Sangster, Aaron Taylor-Johnson, Margot Robbie, Jennifer Lawrence and Bo Burnham. And we saw... The deaths of Barbara Stanwyck, Terry Thomas, Gordon Jackson, Ava Gardner, Greta Garbo, Sammy Davis Jr., Jim Henson, Rex Harrison, Leonard Bernstein, and Roald Dahl. But that was 1990. Very good. Okay, well, that is 1990. Sounds good. Why don't we start off with our top 10 then? Phil, go ahead and share your number 10 film. Okay, well, first of all, this year there was loads of good films. It was it was hard to, to narrow it down, and even when it did... Lots of these could have been in any particular order because, uh, well, I enjoyed enjoyed them all, and there's still lots that I could have made the list. Yeah, it was a, it was a tough one to to do. Actually, it, it was an interesting year. I, I feel the same way. Like I, I I got down to ten films relatively easily, but then when I tried to put them in order, it was like I could put these in almost any order. I I feel like I enjoyed all top all of my top ten films relatively equally. I don't know that. There's a lot of you know difference in how much I enjoyed the film. So yeah, it, yeah. It, it's this is the order for today, but it could all change drastically by tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, it's, and it's like the the my ten, nine, and eight. I could probably swap them out and with others, and it would still all be I'd be perfectly happy with that as well. Right, right. But yeah, okay. So, but my number ten, I'm going with two films just because they're both a piece of violent fun. They're not particularly the best films, but they're you know I enjoyed them. Uh, the first one is called Dark Angel, but I think over in America it was called I Come in Peace. Mm-hmm. Uh, starring Dolph Lundgren, Brian Bemben, and it's a few other people. And it's basically some uh, American cops, detectives, trying to track down a serial killer who's killing people. And it turns out it's an alien who's come to Earth to kill people by overdosing them with heroin and then extracting the drug that's produced in the brain because that's big in the, the galaxy. And it, they, they team up with another alien who's on the good guy side. And I just remember, it's one of those ones I didn't know much about. It. I remember getting out from the video shop and just got enjoying the hell out of it. Right. And I always remember the bad guy going, I come in peace right. before he killed people. <laughs> uh, and the other one was Robocop 2 uh, because Robocop 1 was brilliant. Robocop 2, lots of people slag it off, but I... I always really enjoyed it. Yeah, I don't know. I don't. I don't like that movie. <laughs> yeah, it's well, it's 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 nowhere near as good as the the first one. But I just I like there's bits in it I like, so that's why I just included it with those two because neither of them are brilliant, but together it would be. Uh, I wouldn't mind having you know a double bill of them. Sure. Maybe. Yeah, it'd be a fun night. Yeah. So what have you got for your number ten? My number ten is a film called My Blue Heaven, starring Steve Martin and Rick Moranis. And oh um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Steve Martin plays a, a like a, a gangster who goes into the witness protection program, but he's not very good at staying low key. And he goes, he moves out to like the you know Podunk, Iowa type place, but he's like this you know larger than life. Hey, you, you know that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. And it you know it's I I loved the movie when it came out, and I hadn't seen it for a while, and it, and they put it out on DVD a couple of years ago finally, and uh, I watched it again, and I thought. It holds up really well. It's a very fun film. I think Steve Martin is great in it uh, with Rick Moranis together. The two of them are a lot of fun. And it's just one of those movies, that one of those kind of comedies from the 90s that I, I don't think they make as much anymore where it's not like 
laugh out loud. It, you know, it's it's more like you chuckle at it, but it's really just kind of lighthearted and pleasant. It's not going for over-the-top laughs. It's not going for, like, crass sex jokes or whatever. It's just kind of this good, yeah. feel-good comedy, uh, and it's just a film that I really enjoy. So that's my number 10. No, it's, uh, I like that. I've only seen it the once, but I remember enjoying it because I do like both of those. Yeah, Martin it, it holds minutes, up. Yeah. it holds up pretty well, I yeah. have to say. Oh, good stuff. Okay, my number nine, it's another film starring Christian Slater. This one is Pump Up the Volume. Good choice, love it. Uh, comedy drama, but more, I suppose more the drama side of things, but uh, also stars Samantha Mathis, and Slater's playing uh, a pirate disc jockey who's got this show, he plays music, he starts talking, and he begins changing the way the people in the school, the kids in the school think, and then, you know, he's, he's saying you don't have to just settle for, for doing all these things that you feel you've got to do, you know. He, he brings release for the students, but then, obviously, the uh, the... This governing body don't like it, and he's trying to shut it down and things like that. But I just, I just remember watching it. It was just at the time, it just all seemed to, you know, the things going through your head, and you're going, yeah, that should be it. We'll set, we'll, we'll sort things out, playing music and talking and doing all this, and you want to be a disc jockey because that's how you're going to save, solve so many things. But it's just, it just caught a moment, I think, and and the performances were great. Had some great tunes in it as well. But it's, uh, it was a really uh, well done film with a, a message which wasn't shoved down your throat. It was done in a good way. Yeah, I agree. I, I really yeah. like that film, and I felt I felt the same way about it when I was a, in high school and I saw this movie, and I was like, yes! I had the poster yeah. on my wall, you know, and I was like, you know, Radio Rebellion, you know. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. Uh, it didn't quite make my list, but it, it is a film that I, I do enjoy very much, so good choice. All right, well, my number nine is Days of Thunder, which is, uh, of course, uh, a Tom Cruise film, and it's all about NASCAR. Now, here's the thing. I'm not a NASCAR fan yeah. really at all. But when I was younger, uh, back in 1990 or so, I worked in an electronics store briefly, and we had this uh, rear projection home video system on display that, that like, was like a demo, and so you know projected the movie on the big screen. It's like, hey, you can have a movie theater in your house. Oh, I remember that. Uh, yeah, they were massive. Right. Yeah. Right, and they still make them actually, yeah. but it's you, these were it was a big, big thing, you know, back then. It was a, a big device. I mean, it was huge. You had to hang it mounted on your ceiling and all this stuff. So anyway, we only had two. Um, Two DVDs, two laser discs. Actually, it was a laser disc player attached. Oh, I remember them as well. Discs, God, yeah. Right to, to demo with it. One of them was Paul McCartney's Get Back concert, which is fantastic. So I listened to a lot of Paul McCartney. The other one was Days of Thunder. <laughs> so over the course of a summer, I, I probably saw Days of Thunder about a hundred times because it was on at least two or three times a day. Uh, and it was just, you know, it was kind of stand there, wait for people to come, you know, look at these electronics. And meanwhile, I would stand around and watch Days of Thunder. So I've seen this movie probably more times than I've seen almost any other movie in existence. <laughs> wow. <laughs> uh, and while you might think I would be tired of it, I, I actually really enjoy it. It's it's a very classic Tom Cruise. You know, he's the cocky guy who's good at what he does and gets the girl in the end. Uh, but it has Nicole Kidman, who I love. And despite it being a, a, a racing movie, which I'm not really that into, the race sequences are terrific. It's directed by Tony Scott, who's great. And so it just all adds up to make a really fun and, and exciting film, I think. Well, that could explain your love of cars. <laughs> you know, I don't think so. I, I think <laughs> I love cars because it's, uh, it's a great movie. But yeah, maybe. Maybe there's a connection there. Who knows? No, yeah. It's, uh, as you say, Days of Thunder, it's, it's, got, that, uh, it's got that Tom Cruise standard plot from his earlier films, hasn't it? But... Uh... No, it's a good film. Didn't make my list, but yeah, no, it's uh, it's a good one to have on your list. I can see why it's there. Yeah, I mean, I think I like it more than other people do. Yeah, but I I do think it's like I said, it is Tony Scott directing. He's got a real flair, and and I do find it to be a more enjoyable film yeah. than I think it's people a, give it credit. He does for. make the whole NASCAR scene, as you say, the racing's a lot more interesting than they can be when you you see the actual. Oh yeah, race yeah, NASCAR is great when you only have to watch it six minutes at a time. Yeah. You know? <laughs> 
okay. All right, cool. so what's next on your okay, list? Okay, my, uh, my number eight is uh, Jacob's Ladder, directed by Adrian Lynn, starring Tim Robbins. And it's basically just following this this guy uh, called Jacob. You see him in uh, the Vietnam War, but then you next see him back in the 70s. He's working as uh, for the post office, and he's going about, and he's just living his life. But then strange things start happening. People say odd things to him. Uh, like lying on his hands, a bit different, and then he starts seeing things. People seem to change; it's almost demons, and he's not sure what's going on. And things get worse and worse as time goes on. And then you get to the end, and you find out what's been going on. You're going, "Oh my god!" Ah, it's that's <laughs> twisted, but it all makes sense. And ah. I remember just sort of it's one of those ones because back then you didn't have the internet, and so it came as a total surprise. Didn't know what was going to happen, and it did really surprise me. And it was a very well made film. It's dark and disturbing, but everyone involved does a cracking job, and it it does it brilliantly. All right. Well, my number eight is Back to the Future Three. Uh, I'm a big fan of the Back to the Future trilogy, as I think a lot of people are. Yeah. Uh, and and honestly, it could have been higher on my list, but I always felt like Back to the Future Three was the weakest of the trilogy. It's still a great film. I still love it. It's a lot of fun. You know, Michael J. Fox and Christopher Lloyd together is terrific. But you know, the first one was this groundbreaking, um, you know, just amazing time travel comedy. The second one is one of those. It's like a trilogy of sequels from the '90s, the '80s and '90s, where I love like the sequels even better than the originals because they go in such a different direction. And like Back to the Future 2 is one of my favorite movies of all time. Yeah, yeah. And then the third one is is a good film, but it, that's all it is. It's a it's a good film. It's not it's not quite reaching the highs of the first two. So I, I do like it very much, but that's why it's in my top 10, but that's also why it's not higher in my top 10. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. It didn't make my list purely because, yeah, it's the weakest of the one. And it just, I mean, I enjoy it when I watch it, but it's not, it's not the Back to the Future film I go for, go, oh, let's put that on. Uh, but no, it's a perfectly valid pick for 1990. Thank you. Uh, my number seven is Abel Ferrara's film King of New York, starring Christopher Walken, Lawrence Fishburne, Wesley Snipes, and Giancarlo Esposito. Christopher Walken plays Frank White, who's like a drug war- lord who's got out of prison, and then he's dealing with all like people working for him and other gangs, and he's it's all back and forth, and it's it's Christopher Walken being Christopher Walken, but you know, it's hit. Wow. Yeah, wow. We got a we got a thing we got to do, and he's all he's, his hair's even bigger than it was, but it's uh, it's it's very stylish because it's Abel Ferrara doing it, directing it. Uh, it's got some it's got brilliant actors in it. Uh, you're never quite sure where it's going to go. It's back and forth and things like that. But it's uh, I remember I didn't watching it for the first time, and it just I, I couldn't take my eyes off it. it. Just dragged me along, and you just wanted to see, you know, he's a bad man what he's doing, but. Uh, He's a bad man, but uh, <laughs> but you can't help but you know root for. Who are you? Yeah. I'm bad man. <laughs> you, you, you you know he's doing dreadful things, but you want him to sort of you root him for him. You want him to be you know get away with what he's doing and things like that. But uh, that's uh, that's my number seven. King of New York. Very good. You know, that's one of those films I couldn't remember if I'd actually seen it or not. Yeah. So yeah. that's why I didn't make my yeah. list. I think it's probably a lot of people might be like that because it does. It's never really shown. Yeah, any, I don't think it's on any of the streaming things, any either. Right, right. Yeah. It's definitely one of those films that sort of lives in the background. Okay, well, my number seven is Martin Scorsese's Goodfellas. Uh, as I probably mentioned on the show before, I'm not a huge Scorsese fan. He generally just tends to make movies that aren't quite my thing. But I do love Goodfellas. It's got great performances all across the board. It's got some iconic scenes in it. Uh, you know, Joe Pesci, or, you know, what, am I, how am I funny? Funny like a clown? Do I amuse <laughs> you? I mean, you know, it's, uh, it, it's a, you know, I do like a good gangster movie, and Goodfellas is really a great gangster movie. So um, one I really enjoy could probably have been, this is where he started 
start to get into that area where I could have changed. That could have been my number two pick. It could have been my number seven. You know, I, it's it's in the mix. I liked it a lot, so it's on my list. Oh, that's that's good stuff. Good pick. Okay, my number six is Predator Two, uh, directed by Stephen Hopkins, starring Danny Glover, Bill Paxton. Uh, and it's obviously the sequel to Predator. I always find people either enjoy or hate this film. It gets a lot of hate, but I, I always quite enjoyed it. It's, it has dated a fair bit, but in places, mainly for the way it's shot and think on the way it's lit. Lots of neonist things from what I can remember. But I did like the fact you were getting the Predator in a different place, and it made sense because it was in this, it was in the Los Angeles when there was like lots of tension. It was hot, lots of violence, so it made sense for the Predator to be there. And I like the way it carried on. It was a sequel which carried on from the first one even though we didn't see Dutch and the others, but it may, you know, a sequel doesn't have to have the same people in it. It's, it. it's just moved on from there. And it is mentioned when you see Gary Busey's explaining what's going on. But uh, yeah, I quite liked it. It had Bill Paxton in it. Uh, Danny Glover did a good job. And you, you get, it expanded the whole mythos of the Predator a bit more as well when you get in the spaceship at the end. And you, we finally got to see one of the alien skulls, you know, Xenomorph skull in the back as well. But no, Predator 2, I enjoyed it. It's not... It's not the best war, best film ever, but uh, okay, I was going to say I enjoy it. There you go. I like it too. Didn't quite make my list, but I'm definitely, as we've talked about, I'm a big fan of the whole Predator universe, the Aliens universe. Uh, this is one I, I enjoyed, but it, you know, it's got some great moments. It has some weak moments. So yeah, it's a, definitely yeah. a flawed film. But I don't, I don't hate it by any stretch of the imagination. I, I do enjoy it. All right, good choice. My number six is The Hunt for Red October, the first Tom Clancy book put to film starring Alec Baldwin and Sean Connery. And I just really love that movie. I I remember seeing it in theaters. I was excited for it. I wanted to see it really badly, and I wasn't disappointed at all. I loved it. I saw it a few more times in theaters, and I've watched it on video over the years. And it it really holds up well. Uh, To me, much as I love Harrison Ford, nobody ever captured Jack Ryan the way Alec Baldwin did. Um, you know, back when he was still a dramatic actor instead of a comedic actor. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, and it's just the interplay between him and Sean Connery and, and the whole story. It's just really great. It's a good-looking film. has an amazing score by Basil Polidorus. And uh, it's John McTiernan, who's a great action director. He did the first Predator movie, did Die Hard, Hunt for October. I mean, that's a trilogy of greatness as far as I'm concerned. So, uh, yeah, just a film I really enjoy. Okay. Uh, well... That's good because my number five is The Hunt for Red October. Oh, there you yeah. go. Good choice. Uh, pretty much everything you say. I just, because uh, the Tom Clancy ones, I usually take them or leave them, to be honest. But this one, it's uh, it's always one I want to watch. If it's if I've not seen it for a while, I go, what? If you, oh, yeah, Hunt for Red October. I don't know what it is. But, yep. well, it's, well, I do. It's because it's, uh, as you say, it's, it's Alec Baldwin, I think, mainly. He's yeah. the best Jack Ryan we've had so far. And I just like the whole, you know, they're trying to discover things and then they track it down. Then they realize that Sean Connery's trying to defect and. Oh, it's just it does it well. The action scenes, you say, the tense because it's John McTain and doing it's got you got Scott Glenn, James Earl Jones, Sam Neill all involved as well. Does the Cold War kind of thing so well, and it's yeah. uh, it's always fun to watch. It always it always surprises me as well. I don't know bits and pieces, even though I've seen it loads of times. I still I'm watching it and I go, oh god, yeah, and then, oh yeah, this is <laughs> this is going to happen, and are they going to get away? But yeah, I like it. I do like it a lot. All right. Well, a few minutes ago, I mentioned my like trilogy of 80s sequels where I like the sequels better than the originals, yeah. and this is one of them, and it is Gremlins 2. And it's one of those movies that I think gets dismissed very much like Predator 2. Yeah, like, yeah. Gremlins is kind of a classic horror comedy. And then the second movie, it kind of tanked at the box office, and I think people just dismiss it. And I think it is absolutely brilliant. I think that the humor in it is so 
twisted and so funny and, and just so off the wall. And I think it threw a lot of people off, yeah. but I can quote that movie for days. I think it's hysterical. The whole thing with the, the talking gremlin and all the different kinds of gremlins. And, and it almost it almost satirizes the first movie, but not quite. But it definitely plays on a few of the things about the first movie that made it fun and, and kind of has a little joke at, at that expense. Yeah. And um, I just I love it. I think it's I laugh and laugh and laugh through that film. And I know it's not a movie a lot of people love, but I think it's hysterical. No, I, I really like it as well, but it, it didn't make my list. But yeah, it's. I think it's because they went a different way with it. People people always say, you know, when they have a sequel, they say, oh, I don't want it to be the same. But then if it's not the same, they don't, they go, oh, I didn't like right. that. Right, right, exactly. Because Predator wasn't exactly, the, Predator 2 wasn't exactly the same as Predator. They're going, oh, I don't, don't like that. But yeah, you got got it spot on. It's, uh, I don't want to say it's quite, it's quite a clever film as well, what it does. It is. Yeah, and it's got, it it's got some cracking, the way it uh, expands on the whole gremlin creatures by using you know the gene splicing suddenly have they make they become even scary like the spider one and things like that but uh right no. and and now it's it, it takes place in clamp tower which yes. is a very obvious take on donald trump so it's even more timely i think mm. uh than <laughs> than ever so worth a rewatch yeah no it's a most enjoyable film okay my number four is a western it's kevin costner's dances with wolves based on the book of the same name by Michael Blake. And it's basically, we follow a Union Army lieutenant who travels to the American frontier and gets involved with a group of Indians and a wolf. Uh, it takes its time. It's got, it's beautifully shot. And it's, uh, I think it's because it does take its time. Not, uh, nothing much happens for a while. And then it just, it's just showing this, it's just showing the West and the frontier and living there and just trying to come to terms with what's gone on. What, uh, you know what's what is what the army's done to the to the Native Americans and things like this, and it's uh, it's whenever it's on TV, you know, and flicking the channels, I can't help but sit and watch it, even though it's a long film. But I just I just think Kevin Costner did an amazing job with it, and I, I really enjoy it. Tatanka. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I love Dances with Wolves, and actually it didn't make my list for only one reason. I suspect it's one of those movies where every time you watch it, you forget how good it is. Yeah, yes, it is, yeah. But it's been a really long time since I've seen it. Yeah. And, and I remember I remember that I love it, but I didn't know where it fell on my list of 10 that I loved. So I wasn't sure how much I love it still. Yeah. So just because of that, I left it off my list. But it is a movie that I think is, is pretty darn spectacular. Yeah. Well, because I, I can imagine there's you know a few people listening who'll be going, oh, Dance of the Wolves, no, no. But then if it comes on, they start watching, they go, oh, actually, yeah, yeah, I really enjoyed yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. Right, right, yeah. exactly. Well, my number four is a film. It's a, it's a Western of sorts. It's not all that different from Dances with Wolves. Uh, it is Tremors. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> starring Kevin Bacon and and Michael Gross, uh, and it's uh, you know another cult classic. But I man, I love that movie. I mean, it spawned a whole bunch of sequels, and I've watched every single one of them. Uh, but the first Tremors is really is it's, you know it's a great classic monster movie. It's giant worms out in the desert, and um, it, you know it's just so much fun, and it does everything right. It's likable characters, good humor, good action scenes, you know, scary creatures, and uh, you know it just it, it works from start to finish. So uh, I love Tremors. I'm one of those people who keeps the franchise alive because I keep watching all the direct to video <laughs> sequels, and uh, and you know I will. Just always, always, always love Tremors. I'm just a big fan of the whole, the whole world of the graboids. Uh, I dig it. No, I, uh, I totally agree with you. But my number three is yes. Total Recall. Ah, good choice. Yeah, the uh, Paul Ver Verhoeven film starring Arnie. We we know the story. He's he's has dreams, ends up going to Mars, finds out he's you know a secret agent or is he? But it's you know it's classic Arnie, big action, stupid craziness going on. 
you know, two weeks and all this stuff, quotable, and you got get your ass to Mars. Yeah. Open your mind and all that stuff. It's uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah, loads going on. Every time you watch it, you're going, oh, I forgot about that bit. Oh, is this it? This is the one with that. Yeah, well, it's brilliant. Uh, and so much better than the remake. That was from uh, oh, well, two yeah, years ago. that's a given. Yeah. yeah. All right, well, my number three is Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, the original and still the best of the Ninja Turtles movies. Uh, we've talked about it on the show before, um, and uh, I, I love it. I'm a huge Ninja Turtles fan. I have been since I started reading the black and white comics back in the 80s. And, and I watched this movie not that long ago with my son, and actually I think it holds up still really well. It's dated in some places, you yeah. know, especially with the human characters and you know the fashions and the hair and that stuff. And obviously the, you know, the low-budget stuff is a little more noticeable now. But you know what? The action sequences still really hold up for me the fact that they're real uh you know people in suits doing these stunts it really holds up well i think the uh the humor holds up really well still and the story is is kind of a boiling down of the the first 25 issues or so of the ninja turtles yeah, comics that's, yeah that's right and it got all the best parts it took all my favorite parts out of it it took the you know the battle in the in the junk shop and it took them healing out in the you know the cabin in the woods yeah. and it took the the showdown with shredder and it put it all into this movie that you know like i said uh, you know some of the, the 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 splinter puppet doesn't look so great these days but as far as I'm concerned, the movie holds up really, really well. And as a Ninja Turtles fan for the past 30 years or so, uh, I still really just love this movie to death. Yeah, I, I was like Casey, Casey Jones in that one. I've always thought they got Casey Jones really yeah. did him well. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. No, I've got a very soft spot for that film as well. It didn't make my list, but uh, I can totally understand why it made yours. I do like the turtles. I mean, this uh, the past weekend, I finally watched the, the latest one, Out of the Shadows, with my daughter. And while it's yeah. it's not a patch on, on like the turtles thing, it did have that kind of... Uh, it reminded me, I, I enjoyed it more than the first, yes. one of the new ones. Agreed. It had that comic book, cartoony kind of feel with, you know, because we got Krang coming back and all this. It just it just lifted. It went that bit bit more crazy that sometimes you need with the turtles. Right, right. But uh, yeah, we both enjoyed it. As I say, it wasn't great, but uh, it was... I can see why you had the original one on your list, though. Oh, yeah. yeah. Okie doke. So my number two and our top two now, aren't we? So my number two, uh, you've already mentioned it, is Tremors. Very good. Because I like it. Because I've always loved it. As you say, it's it's a it's a classic B-movie, though, but made made so well. And you've got Kevin Bacon and Fred Ward. And I just love the whole setting. And, it, and what it does as well, it's, it's the kind of thing they did it in them as well in lots of other films, but where you don't really know what's happening and you're finding out with the with the people who are investigating yourself. You get little touches, you see people disappearing, but you're discovering things as the characters are, and I always like that. And so when you finally get the reveal, you're there with them going, oh my God, what's that? And it's, uh, yeah, it's a lot of fun, and it's so funny as well. Right, right, for sure. And it's, it's still, it still holds up the effects as well. They still, it really still, does. Yeah, the movie yeah. as a whole holds up surprisingly well. Yeah, do like it, but that's my number two. Very good. Well, my number two is a movie that has already appeared on your list, and it is Total Recall. <laughs> uh, so I agree with everything you said about it. As we know, I've mentioned a million times before, I'm a huge Arnold Schwarzenegger fan. And um, you know, I think it's also important to note that while the special effects in the film now aren't all that special, at the time they were pretty groundbreaking. Oh, that, yeah, that scene yeah. Where he runs through the x-ray machine and you know sets it off, and you can see the skeletons having like yeah. the fight and everything. That was really, really impressive for 1990. And I remember... That's one of the things I love about that movie is that that sequence just blew me away so much because it was, you know, never seen anything like it before. Um, So, you know, while it's dated a bit now, 
the, at the time it was just really revolutionary and i i love yeah, it you, f- you forget that it did push the uh you know special effects and things yeah, oh, you take absolutely. it for granted these days don't you yeah yeah you do but this was a groundbreaker in, in terms of that so you know i love the science fiction i love the action i love the humor it's just it's one of the best arnold films so that's my number two no a great choice uh, my number one though it's one you've already had it's goodfellas ah uh, yes excellent martin scorsese gangster film i i just think it's done so well the whole you know he's Henry Hill's narrating what's going on, the way it cuts and it's... You have the way it uses the music while it's cutting through and you're seeing the montage of people getting killed and the way he introduces people and you just want to... It's just... It just flows well and you just... You're going through time, you know, you're jumping through time, you know, big chunks or you're going back and forth a bit here and there and then it's you've got that great tracking shot going, you know, as he's going into the, uh, the nightclub, you know, down the stairs through the kitchen and everything, which is just fantastic and... And then you've got the whole paranoia bit at the end when he's, you know, he's doing too many drugs and the police are after him. And I just, it's great performances, uh, so well made, and it's just, uh, it's just brilliant. I like it. I like where you're coming from, sir. Thank you very much. That's my number one for 1990. What about yours? Can't, you, you can't really argue with good, with Goodfellas being your number one yeah. film of the year. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Well, here's where I piss everybody off and I take a bit of a left turn with my number one. <laughs> As I'm sure everyone's expecting to hear a film where they're going to go, oh, of course, that movie. Uh, it is not one of those films. Flubber it wasn't is... out in 1990. <laughs> no, no, it wasn't. <laughs> but if it was, it would be number one. For well, sure. that goes outside. My number one is a movie called Bad Influence, starring Rob Lowe and James Spader. Well, I'd forgotten all about that one. Everybody's forgotten about this movie, I think. But here's the thing. I I saw it uh, back in 1990, I think, when it was on like HBO or something while I was at somebody's house. And I I think I was babysitting or something. And and I watched it and I was like, this is a good movie. And it's one of those movies where, you know, 25 years later, it's one of those films that stuck with me. Like every so often I would just go, man, you know, that Bad Influence was a great movie. Like I haven't seen that. You know, if you see James Spader or you see Rob Lowe, like especially a young one, you go, you know what movie he was in that was great? Bad Influence. And basically James Spader plays this like uptight, like lawyer type character who makes friends with Rob Lowe and Rob Lowe is like the wild and crazy guy so he sort of seduces you know James Spader into this kind of you know partying and and drugs and all this stuff and then Rob Lowe frames him for murder and things go really really twisted from there and it's just a really awesome thriller and it just came out on Blu-ray last year and I was so excited and I watched it again and you know what it holds up Every minute of it holds up just as well as I remember it. It's a fantastic thriller. It'll keep you on the edge of your seat. You know, Lowe and Spader together are terrific. Yeah. Their performances are excellent. And you keep going, how's he going to get out of this? How's it all going to play out? You know, and it really is one of those kind of keep you guessing thrillers. And um, I just, I love it. And it's one of those films that, that it, it's under the radar. But if I can expose people to it, I think they'll really appreciate it. Because yeah, it's, it's a great film. Yeah. I remember seeing it years and years ago. And I remember really enjoying it. And then I don't haven't yeah. seen it. I haven't thought about it since though <laughs> right see and that, that's exactly i think for most people they've forgotten about it and for some reason it's one of those movies that's always stuck in my head and every so often i would just go man i haven't seen that movie in forever i love that movie yeah. and so i was really happy when i watched it a few months back going is just as good as i remember oh, so no. that's why it, it earned my number one spot again i probably could have switched it with with any other movie on my list at some point but it's one of those ones that kind of holds a little special place in my heart just because it's like i feel like it's one of those undiscovered gems and it's also one of those films where you're, you're probably watching you're going oh my god rob blow really really has an age what's going on how does he do it right I, i'm i'm just looking as well at the, the cast list and david Duchovny was in it i was gonna say yeah. uh, he's 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 fully an extra though yeah he doesn't he's, even well, have a line of dialogue he's listed as 
club goer with glasses. Right. He's literally standing behind James Spader at a bar, and you see him for about two seconds. And I, I, when I was watching, I actually posted on Facebook a, a screen cap because I was like, look who's an extra in this film. Because, I mean, he really is just – but you can't mistake that it's him. I mean, the yeah. minute you see him, you're like, I know that guy. That's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm going to have to watch that again. Worth tracking down. All right, cool. Well, there you go. So those are our top 10 films of 1990. And with that, we are going to start to bring this episode to a close. Phil, why don't you go ahead and tell people what we have in store for them next week? Okay, so next week we'll be going after the ending of Cliffhanger and Jumanji. But for our top 10 films, we're doing something a bit different. So back over to you, Mike, to explain. Right. Well, so next week we are going to do a sort of uh, a mashup of years. What's happening is that is going to be our 49th episode. So we have something special planned for our 50th episode. But in order to do that, we got to get a little bit caught up because we didn't start doing 100 years of Hollywood in 100 episodes with our first episode. We started a little bit late. So we're going to catch up. We're going to do a number of we're going to do 16 years between 1918 and 1939. We're going to do them all together. It's going to be kind of our greatest our, our top 10. Maybe we'll do a top 15 of all of those years combined because a lot of those early years especially you know both Phil and I haven't seen movies from yeah. so we're going to kind of cherry pick our best from all those years and that's going to get us caught up a little bit more modernized and to let us do what we want to do for our 50th episode which will eventually lead into our big big plan for our 100th episode a little bit down the line so we'll reveal all the years for you uh, next week but it is going to be kind of a big uh, awesome list from you know basically sweeping over two decades of film yes that's uh, you've explained that well Mike and it will make even more sense when you actually listen to it next week. Yeah, yeah, it'll all, it'll all make sense, but it's going to get us a little bit caught up. And I think people tend to prefer the more recent years anyway. So this will help us get a little bit of those early, early years kind of out of the way. Yeah. Should still be a lot of fun. Please tune in and join us then. Indeed, yes. Thank you, everyone, for listening. It's been another good episode. Indeed it has. Well, if, if we may say so ourselves. Yes. But I was happy with it. So yes, that's all I enjoyed it. <laughs> All right, well, on that note, then, it is time for us to sign off. So, as always, as Phil just mentioned, we thank you greatly for listening. I'm Mike Spring. And I'm Phil Edwards. And we'll see you next week. After the ending. Now, wait, does that make you a blighter? Because isn't, like isn't that like a negative thing? Uh, I think we need to move on from that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, shows how much I know. Well, you know, I don't know where to go from that. <laughs> I don't either. Ah, all for the outtakes, the things we do for the outtakes. This year we are doing... Nope. <laughs> I always do that. This year we're doing a week. Right. <laughs> this year we're doing the week of May 27th, <laughs> 1990. <laughs> Whoa, what the... <laughs> Sorry, I'm, <laughs> I was waiting because someone's... It's motorcycle season. Hooray. That's, wow, that's like a big... I thought there was something in the room with you. <laughs> nope, that's just a motorcycle... <laughs> my favorite time of year yeah makes, makes podcast anyway, recording a lot of fun yeah <laughs> it didn't quite make my list but it, it is a film that I, I do enjoy very much so good chick good 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 chick apparently I think that <laughs> was chick. a good chick Phil it is, it is a good chick I'll yeah. agree with you yeah sure I don't know how Christian Slater <laughs> would feel about us calling him a chick but <laughs> could be heartburn could be I don't know who knows could be love yes could be <laughs> <laughs> very good choice hang on my motorcycle is back <laughs> Someone's riding their hog, as they say over here. I don't know if that means anything to you. No, no, I don't know what it means. Yeah. Okay, all right. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> uh, well, it's different for people working on the farm, but yeah, I know what it means. Well, right. <laughs> we want to talk about people on the farm who ride their hog. <laughs> well, good pick anyway. That was a weird, terrible transition. That was sounded really disingenuous <laughs> too. So. I believed you. Oh, well, thank you. <laughs>
I'm like, I guess my acting skills are better than I thought. Damn you! What was that? I don't know. It went one place. <laughs> it went one place, and I didn't know what to do with it. Yeah, so that's what we're doing for the top ten. Well, for our top. That's what we're doing next week, though, for the uh, the films. But oh god, I can't think of anything to say. <laughs> yes, nicely explained, Mike. And uh... remember that thing about we have to think of what you want to say before you say it. <laughs> <laughs>